through prayer. Thank you that you, at some point along, his faith was strong, but things were tough. Lord, we know that you are here, that you are always with us. As the song said this morning, that you have never left us alone. And we praise you for that, God. And Lord, as we look at our bulletin this morning, there are so many requests, so many things before us as a congregation, people, Lord, who are hurting, people who are sick. And Lord, I pray that this morning we pray that you would draw near to them, that they would know, Lord, that you are present, that you're an ever-present help in time of need. Father, you know what each person is going through, what their families are going through, and that you care, Father God. So we lift up all of these prayer concerns before you, Lord. Lord, this morning we pray for our country. We pray for the world, Lord. We watch the news. We see the things going on. And Father, uh, thank you that we have hope in Jesus Christ. Thank you that this world is not everything. We have the promise of heaven. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you. We do pray for, Lord, our country's leaders. We lift them up to you. We pray for our president. We pray for all of our leaders, that you would give them wisdom. But, Lord, we pray that they would turn to you. And, Lord, we pray that our country would turn from our wicked ways. And, Lord, that we would bow before you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We lift up our country to you this morning. Lord, we thank you for the season of life that our church is in. Thank you that you brought Pastor Wick and his wife here to serve, Lord. We're so excited to see what you have next. We pray, Lord, that you would prepare our church during this interim period, Lord, that we would be intentional, preparing our hearts and our congregation and our fellowship, Lord, for the, the man and the woman that you have coming to lead us as senior pastor. And so we just bring that before you, Lord, but help us to pay attention and help us to walk closely to you as a congregation. Lord, we pray now that you would speak through Pastor Wick, that your Holy Spirit would speak mightily and powerfully through him, that you would bring to mind all the things that he'd prepared for this week. Lord, we know that you have a message for us. We came this morning to hear from you, and we pray that you would speak in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good morning, church. Good to be here. We had a good trip on fr down Friday from uh, St. Paul, and uh, aren't are moved in, but not unpacked yet. So I had to get my find a shirt and a tie. It's not too wrinkled. In good shape here. We're going to look today in uh, the book of Acts, beginning with the 36th verse of chapter 15. Uh, there's a lot to read there, and, I, and uh, we're just going to look at some of the passages in that. But what I would like to read to begin with are the words of our Lord Jesus in the 16th chapter of the Gospel of John. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have peace tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. G.K. Chesterton said someplace in his many writings, Jesus promised his disciples three things, that they would be completely fearless, 
absurdly happy and constantly in trouble. Does that sound like your life as a believer? Absurdly happy, completely fearless, and constantly in trouble. And part of that tribulation and trouble is conflict. Conflict is inevitable. You've seen it here last week in the 15th chapter of Acts with the Council of Jerusalem dealing with a crucial theological conflict. The question was, would Gentiles have to become Jews in order to be Christian? Isn't that funny, by the way? That's completely turned around now. Now the big controversy is, does a Jew have to become a Gentile in order to become a Christian? We've forgotten that conflict completely that was happening back at the Council of Jerusalem. That was a conflict that was resolved with one side having to lose. The Pharisee party had to give up on that idea. And of course, we know because of later conflicts that not all of them did. It was an ongoing conflict in the church. But some conflicts have to have a loser. And somebody has to win if God's righteousness is going to prevail. Now, the problem with conflict is we don't like it, typically at least not here in the Midwest. Now, I'm not from around here, so I've never lived in Nebraska before. I'm looking forward to it. It used to mean you had a winning football tradition. I'm sorry about that. Do you know that Gophers are 4-0 and now, by the way? They beat Michigan State yesterday 34-7. to My goodness, I, what's going on with that? I can't even relate to that. I just were used to just losing all the time, so it's different. But it's a different culture, I understand, in in the upper Midwest maybe than it is here. But I I sense that we share something in common here in the Midwest, which is that we like to avoid conflict. Uh, Even the way men stand when they talk to each other, it's at a 45-degree angle, and they stare at their own shoes. Extroverts stare at the other guy's shoes. That's how that works. (laughs) And we don't like to confront. Uh, It was a shock when, uh, in 1970, Pat and I moved to Philadelphia, and they have a different approach there. They don't stand at a 45-degree angle. They stand with their toes touching your toes, and they lean into you. And they don't avoid conflict. They create it. <laughs> Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly shove. <laughs> it's quite a place. They love to fight, and then they resolve it, and they leave friends. It's a little different. We have passive-aggressive behavior here in the Midwest, and it's... I think kind of a northern European thing versus Philadelphia's got a lot of Jews and a lot of Italians and Greeks. They're Mediterranean in their culture. And that's the culture we're looking at here in the book of Acts is the Mediterranean culture, a culture that does not shy away from conflict. And what's important to understand is that conflict is inevitable. You're going to have it. It's part of the tribulation that you endure in the world as a Christian, as a human being. There's going to be conflict, and you can't avoid it. You can only delay it. And the more you delay it, the worse it's going to be when it finally breaks out. So it's important we understand conflict. And then in this chapter, and on into the next chapter, Acts 15, 36 to 16, 34, we have three different kinds of conflict. There's conflict between people. There's conflict that's demonic, spiritual warfare. And then there's conflict with the powers that be with the economic structure and the political structure that's represented. We're all of us dealing with that. We've all dealt with it 
at some point, and we're going to continue to deal with it. And this is sort of a how-to. This is a case study section of the book of Acts that shows how to do it, just as with the Council of Jerusalem. The interpersonal conflict, verses 36 to 41, here in chapter 15. We have the conflict that's between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. And you know the story, I think, well enough. John Mark had gone on the first missionary journey, and after a very exciting and stressful time in Cyprus, he went home. And, and Paul really resented that, and Paul said, he didn't go with us to the work. And now, now Barnabas wanted to bring John Mark along for this second, this revisit of the churches. And this was his cousin, by the way, uh, probably a younger cousin. I, I can relate to this because I have a cousin, Bob Johnson, um, if you look at the Minneapolis phone book, there's probably four or five pages of Bob Johnson's. But at any rate, um, Bob is 100. He turned 100 last May, and I'm only 76. So maybe, maybe it was a little bit like, like Bob and, and Wick. There was this older cousin, Barnabas, who looked after John Mark. And I don't think it was just a family thing, because Barnabas had this personality. His name means the son of encouragement. And you know what he did with, the, with Saul of Tarsus, who'd been the terror of Christians, had thrown them in prison, men and women, and tormented the church, and then had this experience on the Damascus Road. And his whole life turned around, and, and the Christians were afraid of him. But Barnabas took him in hand and introduced him to the apostles and ultimately called him back to, to minister in Antioch. Barnabas and Paul had been sort of co-pastors there and had taught the church in Antioch. So Barnabas had gone to bat for Saul, and now he was doing it again with his cousin, John Mark. But Paul was having none of it. Paul was very focused on the mission, and, and, I, and I've been here as a pastor. Would you like to hire this guy as your part-time youth guy who's a student at Philadelphia College of the Bible, but he's got some problems, this, that, and the other thing, you know, and the answer is no, because we're desperate to have somebody who's competent and has got their act together. And oh, but please, can you please take But Look, we're a struggling little congregation. We can't afford to take on a guy who doesn't know how to do it. He at least has to know how to do it. I mean, I've been, I've been Paul who said no, but then I've also been Barnabas at times and, and said, well, okay, let's take a chance. We, you know, we've got some people that can help him. And I think Paul was just thinking in terms of we're on this, we're on the road and we're going back into situations where we know there's a lot of trouble, there's a lot that needs to be done, and the last thing in the world we need is a team member that I know has proven himself to be unreliable in the past. Barnabas is saying, give him another chance. The Holy Spirit's been at work in him. And so they had a conflict, and they worked it out. How did they work it out? Well, they went their separate ways. It was a sharp disagreement. And so Barnabas got the win. He got to bring his cousin along, and they went in one direction. And Paul got the win. He got to not travel with John Mark, and he recruited Silas to go with him, and later on would recruit Timothy to join the team, and he went in another direction, and so he got his way. Now, I don't know how long it took or if there was even a big deal about this, about the the stress that that caused and about how they thought about each other. But this is what we know from the biblical record, is that when Barnabas's name comes up, and the Apostle Paul mentions him a couple of times in the epistles, it's always very positive. 
There's nothing negative about it whatsoever after this. And as, as you remember in 2 Timothy, he's, he asks for John Mark to come. He said, because he's useful to me in service. I need his help. So he had become resolved to the idea that John had made some progress, and maybe, maybe by this time Mark had written the gospel, and it was being used in the churches, and Paul recognized that the Holy Spirit certainly had used him. But it, I don't think there was a big deal between them in terms of personalities going down the road. There was an acceptance of that. Meanwhile, it was a win-win. And ideally, when there's interpersonal conflict in the church, if you can figure out a way that both sides can win, there's an energy that comes out of that. And one of the terrific things that happened here is that the missionary visits were doubled because they went in two different directions. And additional people were recruited and became part of the training teams that went out. It was a very positive resolution with no lasting animus. So uh, what do we learn from this? Don't avoid conflict. Commit to resolve it. And then aim for a win-win. How can both parties in this conflict come out on top? And then, very important, stay focused on the mission. In the resolution of this conflict, Barnabas left with John Mark, but he left to go to work. The mission was to go revisit the churches and encourage them and strengthen them with gospel teaching. And Paul didn't sit and stew about this in Antioch. He took off and he went on his mission. And they stayed on mission, and that's the question can we do that? We have disagreements in the church all the time. But let's stay on the mission. This wasn't a disagreement over mission. This wasn't a disagreement over theology. This was just an interpersonal conflict. So let's see if we can have a win-win and let's keep on track with the mission. Keep doing the Lord's work. Now the second instance of conflict here is in the 16th chapter. And of course, uh, as, as Paul and, and, uh, and Silas move on, um, we're, we're going to cover this in a little bit, but they, they move on and they, they're in Asia Minor, in the, in the Roman province of Asia. It's not talking about the continent of Asia. And they move through that, and the, the Holy Spirit won't let them share the gospel there because they're going to go on now and cross over into Europe for the first time, and they're going to end up in Philippi. And they get a vision, the Macedonian call. Paul sees this vision in the middle of the night, and, and, and this, they see this man say, come over here and help us. And so, so Paul and Silas immediately go, and, and they go to Philippi. And while they're in Philippi, they're preaching, and, and they, they don't have the kind of situation they had other places. So they have this sense of call and direction, and when they get there, there's no synagogue. Now, what does Paul usually do? On the Sabbath, he's in the synagogue, and there's no synagogue. There weren't enough Jewish men in Philippi to form a synagogue, but they knew this was the Jewish custom. If there wasn't a synagogue, there would be a place of prayer, and if there was a river, it would be down by the river. So they went down by the river on the Sabbath, and sure enough, they find a group of Jewish people and some Jewish converts there praying, and they get their first converts to Christianity. But then they got a problem. There's this servant girl who's possessed by a demon and has this gift of prophecy, and she's following them around, proclaiming at the top of her lungs, these, these are, are, are men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation, which is true. And this is going on day after day, and it's just irritating after a while. I get the same feeling when I pull up at a stoplight and somebody's got that music turned up and you can feel it in your diaphragm. Boom, 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 boom. Well, you got to shut that up, please. 
But I mean, it's not that she was saying anything true or doing anything really terrible, but this is just irritating. And so Paul says, I'm going to deal with this. We've got a conflict here. And Paul was not about to accept endorsement from a demon. Neither did Jesus, by the way. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 34. Jesus would not let the demon speak and point out who he was. He wasn't interested in that kind of endorsement. There's a lesson, by the way, in that. We don't need his help. Because here's the deal. If Satan cannot stop a spiritual revival, he'll join it. He'll get right in on the ground floor, and he'll be one of the people making the most noise and being the most excited about it, but it's all fake. And some people are going to look at it and say, hey, this thing isn't genuine. He knows what he's doing. That's why he's working in this girl. He's got this, one of his assistants there in this girl. We're causing all this ruckus so that right from the beginning we can discredit this gospel message, you see. And Paul was having none of that. So he has a little exorcism. He resolves the conflict by just direct action, a little prayer, a little exorcism, and the demon leaves. End of story, okay? There, there has to be a loser in this kind of conflict. When you're up against satanic forces, you cannot deal with the devil. The devil loves to present this to us. Well, you've got two evils here. Choose the lesser of two evils. You know what happens when you choose the lesser of two evils? You've chosen evil. You can't do that. It's no, don't do that. Do not accept the devil's bargains. It's got to be Jesus wins, Satan loses, because that's the way it is. This is spiritual conflict. In applying this, it's important to remember that our fight is not against human foes. Where does it say that? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For our fight is not against human foes, but against the superhuman forces of evil in the heavens. This is the devil that's behind this. This has got nothing against this servant girl. It's this demon that's making all the noise, and so Paul takes care of it. Let's recall that. Remember, there can't be any compromise with the devil. He's got to lose in this one. We've got to win. And then be fearless in these situations. Because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Uh, what did we read in, in John 16, 33? But, but take, take heart, courage. The victory's mine. I have overcome the world, Jesus says. And then when we're faced with spiritual conflict and the forces of evil, we need to pray. Again, Ephesians chapter 6 deals with it in verse 18. Be constantly in prayer during this time of transition at Hastings Berean Bible Church. There's going to be spiritual conflict that's part of the deal because Satan doesn't want this church to have a witness in Hastings. This is a church that teaches the Bible. Satan doesn't want the Bible to be taught. Satan is the father of lies. You're preaching the truth here. You're teaching the truth. You're trying to live the truth. He, doesn't, he wants to tear this place. There will be conflict, and we need to pray. As part of what I'm going to share with our board on Thursday night, I'll, I'll be laying out a prayer strategy. And I know you're a praying church already, I, I, and I'll be looking at what you're already doing, but I want to magnify that and maybe add some things, maybe, maybe add some congregational prayer meetings to that, maybe add some other things in a prayer strategy. I'm not here to go into detail on that, but you're a praying church, you need to keep it up. 
This is a crucial time. Satan would really like to mess this place up during this time of transition. But he hasn't got a chance, does he? He doesn't have a chance because greater is he who is in us than he is in the world. But it behooves us to be walking with Jesus closely and be in communication with him and be praying during this time. That's how we handle conflict that's spiritual warfare. Now, the third thing that happens here is chapter 16 and verses uh, 19, 19 through 36. We've got conflict that comes as a result of this demon being cast out of this girl because she was the real deal. Here's the thing about spiritual things that I've learned over the years, the spiritual conflict, is that occasionally you'll run into somebody who's a fortune teller who's got some kind of gift of some kind that's real. You know, you know the name Houdini. Houdini was, a, was an illusionist, a magician, but a, a magician is a, is a man who acts like a magician. Uh, there, there's no such thing as magic. It's, it's all illusion, and, and, and Houdini knew that. And Houdini knew all of the tricks that were being used in seances. There was, during his era, I think back in the 1920s, there was a lot of interest in communicating with spirits of the dead, which is forbidden in Scripture. But these, these charlatans would do things, and, and they were just tricks. They were just, and he knew them. He'd go to a seance, and he knew immediately what they were doing, sleight-of-hand tricks. And how were they making that crystal ball float in the air? Well, he could do that. He knew how to. It wasn't really floating in the air. It looked like it was. And where did all these noises come from? How, did, how could the table rise up off the floor and shake like that? And oh, it, was, it was creepy, and he knew exactly how to do it. It was all phony. So he, he was there to expose it. But once in a while, he would run into something he couldn't explain. Uh, years ago in Philadelphia, uh, a man came to visit, and he did a series of meetings in our church. Long story. I can't go into a long story how he got there. His name was Kurt Koch, K-O-C-H. And he's from Germany. And he was a little short German guy with a thick, of course, German accent because he was from the Black Forest region of Germany, the Schwarzwald. And he was an exorcist. And he'd been called into Philadelphia by some group that couldn't host him. And the last minute, he ended up at Pilgrim Baptist Church. So we had a church full of black pastors and me and our church staff. And, and he, was, he was addressing the church for a week of meetings about, about dealing with demons and so on. And I got to know him. I spent a lot of time with him. And he traveled all over the world uh, and teaching people about how to deal with demonic possession and so on. And, and here's what he told me. He said, about 99% of what people think is demonic possession isn't. It's mental illness or it's somebody faking it. That's what he told me. And this was a guy who'd been all over the world. I, I'm all, this is not research. This is just anecdotal. I realize that. But this guy had been everywhere. He'd, he'd been to, uh, to Indonesia. He'd been to India. He'd been to China. He'd been to all over Europe. He'd been to Australia, New Zealand. And, and every place he went, he was dealing with this. And he said most of it's just illusion, fake, whatever. He said, it's the 1% that you can't explain that makes your hair stand on end. Because there really is such a thing as demonic possession and demonic forces. And he, was, he told me how to recognize it. It's not here. I'm not here to talk about that today. But I'm, I'm just here to say, this, this is real stuff. It can happen, and when it does happen, you've got a money-making proposition because you can foretell things that are going to happen. You know what's going on in people's heads if you've got a demon, because the demons are sort of, you know, they've got like a wireless transmission to, into people's brains, apparently. 
They, they know what's going on somehow that in some way we can't explain. And this girl was the real deal, and so she was able to tell people things that were making a lot of money for her owners. And all of a sudden, poof, she couldn't do it anymore. I, I wouldn't be surprised if she was still making predictions, but, you know, the horse in the third race that was always coming in winning with long odds wasn't winning anymore. It was like back to the real world. They were not happy. They'd lost their source of income. They were really unhappy, and so they complained to the authorities, and the authorities sided with them. And, and anyway, you know, Paul and Silas would be recognized as Jews, ironically. They were in trouble with the Jews because they were preaching the gospel. They were in trouble with the Gentiles because they were Jews. What fun. And so immediately the crowd turns against them, and now they got problems because Christianity, the gospel, changed the way people lived. They changed this girl. She couldn't do it anymore. She couldn't tell the future anymore. She couldn't ferret out people's secrets anymore. She was worthless now. This is what the gospel should do, folks. The gospel should disrupt our world. Amen? These are the men, they said, who turned the world upside down. That's a disruptor. Only they were actually turning an upside down world right side up. That's what the gospel does. It changes people. It, the power of the gospel, if it's at work, if we're doing our job as believers, we are going to ruffle feathers. We're going to get people angry at us and upset because we're changing the way people live. Back during the days of, of the Great Awakening, the taverns closed down. They lost business. The people, guys weren't going out getting drunk anymore. And they were upset about that. It changed the the whole complex of communities for the better. But there was a lot of short-term pain along the way. That's what's going on here. I'm just saying, it could happen with us. I hope it does happen more and more here in Hastings because of the power of the gospel. What are you going to do? In the long run, the changes are for the best. But as a result, Paul and Silas get arrested. They don't even get a trial. They get beaten with rods, horrible, ripped the skin off their backs, and thrown into the deepest dungeon and put in stocks, which is extremely painful, that's their, that's their reward for being faithful to Jesus. That's their reward for obeying the vision of the man who said, come over here and help us. And yet they were singing praises to God at midnight in the prison. One of the highlights of Scripture. Uh, these two men who were so faithful to the Lord that the consequences of being faithful to the gospel when it led to pain and suffering did not phase them in the least. They're praising God for the opportunity to suffer for Jesus. I, I want to be like them. I'm not saying I am like them. I hope you're like them. It's a hard thing to be this faithful. What's the application of this? The application of this is the resolution to this conflict is a miracle. When things are at their absolute worst, they're, they're with their bleeding backs, their agonizing legs because they're in these stocks, praising God at midnight, what does God do? He sends an earthquake. And this is no ordinary earthquake. This is an earthquake that immediately releases the bonds, the shackles that are on all the prisoners. This is not just a, a natural earthquake. This is a supernatural earthquake. And the doors fly open. And the next thing you know, the jailer is on his knees saying, what must I do to be saved? 
They haven't even preached the gospel yet to him. And he comes to the Lord. He and his family are baptized. They get treatment for their backs. And then the word comes the next morning, release those men. And Paul said, release those men. They didn't even give us a trial. They beat us, and I, a Roman citizen, illegally. Oh, they didn't know he was a Roman citizen. They never gave him a chance to open up his mouth, and all of a sudden, they're in trouble. And so they make haste. He said, have them come to us and release us. So they come, and they say, oh, please leave. We're sorry this happened. Now, Paul could report them to the people up the chain of command, and they're in big trouble. So they're not saying, what is he doing by doing this? He's providing cover for the infant church in Philippi. He's now got something on the officials. You realize that about this. He's got something on them at this point. You know, if all he's got to do is send word about what happened, and they can't very well deny it because there were a lot of witnesses to it, and they're in trouble. So what he's doing is giving some relief from persecution from the authorities to the church in Philippi by insisting that they come and release him. This is a... This is quite a resolution, isn't it? Oh, all that they had to do was be faithful. And then God said, all right, you guys have done all you can do. Boom, comes the earthquake, and now comes the change, and now comes the protecting hand of God over the church in Philippi. That's a pretty good resolution. That's the best resolution we've heard about this morning. God does really good work, doesn't he? When he does it, he doesn't leave any stone unturned. He does everything. So we won't always, if we're going to apply this, we won't always, when we are seeking to have conflict resolved with the powers that be, we won't always be able to avoid pain and suffering. The book of Hebrews, 11th chapter, the writer talks about various things that have happened in the course of the history of God's people and how some suffered greatly, and and some of them were sawn in two uh, that was probably Isaiah, by the way, he ended up life that way. His life was ended as a martyr. Um, and and s- some of them were, were put to death. So it's certainly possible later on it would happen with Paul and with Peter and with many of the apostles. In fact, John was the only one of the original 12 who wasn't martyred. And he was boiled in oil, but it escaped. That's extra biblical information. But we won't always as this conflict with the powers that be is a result. We won't always escape pain and suffering, but, but the gospel will never be defeated in the process. The gospel will win the day. That's the promise from God. That's the application. The gospel will never fail if we are faithful. So first the pain, then the praise, then the prize. Resolution. Now, one more thing about this passage in 1536 to 1634. How God leads is is demonstrated here. First of all, in 16, 6, and 7, it tells us about the Holy Spirit not preventing them to speak the word in Asia, verse 6. And when they came to Timaisia, verse 7, they attempted to go in Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Sometimes God leads by shutting a door and by saying no. We're always looking for a yes. We had a plan. We'd like to have God rubber stamp it. And sometimes God says no. There's something else that I want you to do. There's another direction that I want you to go. Oh, great. So then we get there, and what happens? There's no synagogue 
We've got a handful of people down at the beach. That's it. And then we got this crazy girl screaming, and the next thing you know, we're getting beaten and thrown in prison. So I guess God was wrong. No. God leads in strange and mysterious ways, doesn't he? It all turns out for the good in the long run. But sometimes God leads by saying no. Sometimes in verses uh, 9 to 18 of chapter 16, we got a vision, the Macedonians. Sometimes God sends a dream or a vision to lead. Now, that's just unusual. But how in the world do we get this kind of, how do we know when God has said no? And Luke doesn't tell us. He said just the spirit of Jesus wouldn't allow it. What did, whoa, time out, Luke. Can you give us a couple of chapters on how that worked? And he doesn't. So what do you think? What does he give us? He gives us the spiritual life of the Apostle Paul. And then the Holy Spirit fills the Bible up in the New Testament with Paul's letters. So what do we know about Paul? He was a person of prayer, wasn't he? In, in my prayers, I'm constantly, pray without ceasing. This is the Apostle Paul. This is the Apostle Paul who says to the Galatians, keep in touch, or keep in step, rather, with the Holy Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. This is Paul is walking with Jesus every day. His prayer life is intense and sincere. And so I don't think that Luke felt he had to explain how they knew what the Holy Spirit wanted them to do. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't claim that kind of, you know, being in touch with the Lord. I want to be that way. This is a goal to strive for as believers, that we walk so close to Jesus that, that we hear the no as well as the yes. No, not this way, but go this way. And then being, walking so close to Jesus, being so sure of his presence that even when things go wrong, apparently, it was a total disaster. It was an absolute wipeout in Philippi. So how, what are we going to do? Why don't we sing and praise God? And let's see what he does. That's the way to go. God's leading, walking with him every day. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who has never met you as their personal Savior, that this would be the morning where their Lydia or the Philippian jailer and are recognizing the truth when they hear it, that this would be a day of repentance and turning from self and turning to faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for all of us here this morning who are believers, that we would recognize what Jesus wants us to do. Because Jesus, we're walking with you every day. We're praying with you. We're listening to what you have to say in your word and in our heart. Lord, I pray for your blessing, for your power to be displayed in this congregation. I'm sure, Lord, that you have a mission for us to perform. We've been working at it for years. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would re-energize us, pour your Holy Spirit out, and, Lord, may we have the joy of seeing people come to know Jesus as their Savior. In his name we pray, amen.